Some of you might be wondering, so opening Sunday, opening service, where do we open our Bibles? Well, I just told you, but like, in reality, where do you start? Do you start in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created? You could. Do you start in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God? You, you could go there as well. Do you go to Acts and look at the beginning of the church and, and really this, this birthplace of what God had intended? You could go there. And yet, here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Mark chapter 1, Gospel of Mark as a, overhaul, as a, as a big over, um, overall picture of what our next few months is going to be. You say, why, why are we going there? Well, here at Gospel Grace Church, we want to be all about coming to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And here's what the Gospel of Mark does. The Gospel of Mark does this. It really reveals and shows who Jesus is, and it also is supposed to help us realign our lives with following in the way of Jesus. Because some people had an idea what, what it meant to follow Jesus or what it meant to follow this Messiah, but they had the, the false view or a, maybe a, a swayed perspective. And so hopefully as we look and, and work through this, uh, we're going to see Jesus in maybe a little different light, uh, a, a proper light, a, a better light, if you will. You know, um, you see the, the series title, Life Redefined, Following Our Savior King Through the Book of Mark. But today's message is going to be titled, Seeing Jesus for Who He Is. Seeing Jesus for Who He Is. Um, you see, many people, as they had this perspective of what they thought the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One might look like, um, their perspective was off. Uh, that was, they wanted a savior, a messiah, someone that would be according to their terms, not God's terms. Um, oftentimes, they wanted someone to make their life good, perfect, happy, harmonious now, rather than going through uh, times of suffering and struggle and pain. And here's what we come to understand about Jesus. Jesus didn't come to just simply make our life better now. Um, what we actually see is he would be with us now in the midst of the struggle, but, but he actually, instead of a, a temporary short-term fix, he wanted to give us this adopted eternal home that fixes everything in the end, which is so much better than just a, a good, good day or good week or, or whatever. And so that's what we're going to hopefully see as we consider Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And so here's this, this big idea that I want us to think through today. It might be a little wordy, but try to follow with me. The way we follow Jesus depends on our perspective of who Jesus is. I'll say that again. The way we follow Jesus depends on our perspective of who Jesus is. Another way you could say it is this. Our perspective of Jesus determines the pathway to which we follow Jesus. If I gave you a map and I gave you the wrong map, directions to my house. You could try to follow the, the pathway, the, the perspective of that, but the pathway is going to lead you the wrong direction. And yet if I give you the right map, the, the right trajectory, the right perspective, it's going to lead you in the right direction. You see, your perspective determines your pathway. And if you and I perceive Jesus to be one thing and then he doesn't turn out to be that way, we might say, this little Jesus isn't what I signed up for, and we, we get rid of him. But if we come to understand who Jesus is and what he is calling us to, that's going to dramatically change 
the way in which we walk and interpret life. And so this is something that I want us to see. This is something I want us to enjoy and appreciate for properly understanding Jesus' life helps us to redefine our own life. I, I, I want to, I mean, Jesus, time and time again, in the Gospel of Mark, in all four Gospels, he says, follow me, follow me, follow me. How do we follow him if we don't truly know him? And so what we're looking to do is come to know him according to what his written word says. Um, at Gospel Grace Church, uh, we firmly believe in the importance of what's called expositional preaching. You're like, you just lost me. Big word. That's just a fancy way of saying, oh, we really like to read the Bible, interpret the Bible uh, verse by verse, passage by, by passage, and really seeing that the big perspective, to really connecting the dots, to put things in context. Because how, how God has done it from Genesis to Revelation, he's given us the whole story of God's plan of redemption, and oftentimes, as we consider that, there's a connecting of the dots, and they overlap and overlay. But if we just kind of cherry-pick here or there, we don't tend to see or appreciate that. And so while we might do, from time to time, um, topical messages or certain passages here or there, for the most part, we're going to just seek to take a deep dive into the Scriptures, uh, week by week, getting here and getting here, and just one passage to the next. But we're going somewhere, and hopefully as a result of this, you'll have a better understanding, a fuller picture in a greater context on a richer deeper level so today we're going to get into it but from here we're just going to springboard uh to the next section to the next section week after week and so we're not going to get too far today because this is just an overview this is just an introduction if you will but we're seeking to prayerfully and methodically work through the scriptures with that in mind before we jump into um mark chapter one verse one um I want to set the stage, and there's three things that we're going to be looking or considering today. Uh, the original author, the overall audience, and the overarching aim. So these are three things that we're going to be considering today, and hopefully we're going to seek to answer this question. Who is Jesus, and what does he call us to? Who is Jesus, and what does he call us to? So with that in mind, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll get to the first part of verse 2. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Join me for a quick word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Um, I pray that this time would be profitable. It wouldn't just be us gathering, but you and your word and your spirit would uh, work in this midst, and we would walk out of here changed, maybe better, maybe closer to you as a result of our time together. And so we ask that you meet with us through the preaching and uh, proclamation of your word this morning. So we say this in Jesus' name, amen. So, the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is actually the oldest of all of the Gospels. Uh, there's four of them, obviously Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, but as we consider this context, let's look at the original author. Who is the author? Well, obviously all of you out there, you're probably all smarter than me, and you're going to say, well, it's Mark. Yes, I, I understand that and, that, and that is true, and early church historians would, would look at that and recognize that and say, yes, it's Mark. However, in the Gospel of Mark, and just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them actually proclaim themselves as the author. I, John, write this book. I, Mark, write this book. You know why? Because they didn't want the book to be about them. They wanted the book to speak and proclaim Christ. And here's what you see with all four Gospels. They each have a different writing style and different element. 
because Jesus isn't one-dimensional. So one might look at Jesus and understand him this way, and then one wants to write about him this way, and it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. You can look at this side of it and see that, and then look at another side and, and see another dimension. And that's what you'll see with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so uh, Mark, though, he has this, this desire and this purpose to um, proclaim Jesus in a little different light. They want to show, he wants to show forth the Messiah, the suffering servant king. And what does that mean? And so we're going to understand that. But you may be asking still, well, who is Mark? Because I remember John, Matthew, and Luke. These were disciples of Christ. These were apostles. Like they, they were part of all of these miracles. Who is Mark? And I'm super glad that you asked that question. Um, oftentimes, Mark goes by, by this. John Mark or John uh, John also called Mark. John was a most popular Hebrew name, and Mark was a very popular uh, Roman name. And so you're going to see these overlaps. In fact, here's where we see Mark enter the scene. Acts chapter 12, verse 12 says this. Well, actually, before I read it, it says, just to put things in context, this is where we first see Mark enter the scene, and we really don't even see him. Peter, after 10 years uh, there in Jerusalem, he's been thrown in prison, he's released from prison, he escapes, he's, he's miraculously freed, and it says that he runs to someone's house. And verse 12, Acts 12 says this, as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. There's like a hundred different Marys that we see throughout the scriptures. Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. Keep in mind, Peter for the past 10 years, has been in and around Jerusalem. He's one of the church leaders there from the day of Pentecost, and he would have oftentimes preached in these different homes. So as Jesus enters into the home preaching, maybe John Mark is just young and, and hearing the words of Peter preaching and teaching. It's even said that this might have even possibly even been the house of the Last Supper. So we see that, that John Mark is observing and hearing the gospel firsthand from Peter. In fact, when Peter is freed from prison, he runs straight to the house of John Mark. So we see the entrance of John Mark. But moving throughout the scripture in Acts chapter 12, once again, in verse 25, uh, there was a famine. And those that sought to intervene and help supply some of the needs during the famine was the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. We all know them. And as they journey, listen to what verse 25 says in Acts chapter 12. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem. Okay, that's cool. But on which they took John Mark. You see, John Mark was just kind of like the, the third wheel, if you will. He, he's there. You see the prominent figures of Paul and Barnabas, but, but John Mark is there. And then as we cruise a little further, Saul and Barnabas, they're praying about going on a, a missionary journey. They're close companions. They're, they're, they're church leaders. And the church is fasting and praying. And they say, yes, we're going to send out Paul and Barnabas on this first journey. And Acts 13, verse 5, reveals something interesting. That they also had John as their assistant. The word assistant there could also be translated helper. This John is John Mark. So once again, you have the, the superheroes, Paul and Barnabas, and then over here, just a little helper, just a little helper, just John Mark, 
That's what we see, though. Uh, here he is, once again, just kind of in the shadows. He's maybe thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be exciting. This is going to be cool. I get to go with these guys on this cool trip. You know, maybe he's a young teenager, young 20-something. Like, I'm going to see the world. This is going to be awesome. And we're just going to go give high fives and preach Jesus everywhere. And it's just going to be smooth sailing. Like, maybe that's his perspective of who Jesus is. And I'm all about that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do that. Well, <laughs> Acts 13 Verse 13 shows that it um, didn't exactly turn out that way. It says, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. That word left right here, this has the, the meaning or thought of abandonment or deserted. So they're doing a, a good work for God, and when things got tough, he ditched them. He abandoned them. And this is going to create some strife later. And so here we see this John Mark. He's writing the Gospel of Mark. And here we see him abandoning the mission of God. Whoa, this doesn't seem good at all. And here's what we probably come to understand. He thought this would be a great journey. And maybe after a fruitless time or some hard times, like, okay, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm out of here. Um, and yet... Maybe he just had the wrong perspective of who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus. And so after this first trip concludes, some time has passed, and Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, are praying about going out on a second journey and visiting all those churches, and Barnabas is like, hey, let's give John Mark a second chance. You know, he messed up, he ditched us, he bailed, all this, I get that. Let's give him a second chance. Paul says, no, I am not taking him. I'm not taking, I'll take Silas, but I'm not taking him. And so here's what we see. Paul takes Silas and departs this way. And Barnabas, just like he was a friend to Paul, he sought to be a friend to John Mark as well. And they go out. And then after they serve on this mission's journey, we really don't see him on the stage again. He doesn't appear really in the book of Acts anymore. But here's what we come to learn. Barnabas is actually not just a good friend to John Mark. Barnabas is a, is a great encourager, but we actually see that they're a family, that they're actually related. Colossians 4 will talk about this family relationship of them being cousins. And so Barnabas desired to help Mark regardless of his past mistakes. That's, that's a good lesson for us. And so here's what we learn. 20 later, years later, after the first encounter in Acts chapter 12, uh, Mark isn't really in the narrative of Acts anymore, but 20 years later, somewhere along the line, Mark and John had reconciled. Philemon 1, 23 says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark and Ericotus and Demas and Luke, my co-workers. So here's what we come to understand. Paul and Mark overcame their differences and became co-workers and companions in the service of of the Lord. And that's what Christians ought to do. Seek to reconcile and work together as co-workers. And we see John Mark being reconciled to Paul and working with him there. And then in a similar time frame, once again, they're in Rome during this time when, when Paul is writing this in Colossians 4. Uh, he says, my fellow prisoner sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. Where Paul wants, wants, wants nothing to do with John Mark, he's now saying, welcome him, listen to him, receive him. Clearly, 
Paul had some confidence in Mark of what was going on. And then we're going to see him one more time. This is in Rome once again, and this is Peter, or this is Paul writing to Timothy. And he says this at the end of his life, one of his final requests in 2 Timothy 4.11, Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful for me in the ministry. John Mark, once doubted, once deserted, he came full circle. Paul once looked at him as being useless, and he says now he is useful. This is John Mark. This is the one that's going to be writing this book. And this is the story and transformation of the gospel. You see, God loves to take that which seems apparently useless, having no purpose, drive, whatever goal in life, and puts them in a place as they follow the pathway of who Jesus is. Puts them in a place of being useful. They now have a new identity, a new value, a new goal, a new drive in life. Something greater than this small little kingdom and makes them a part of a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom work. This is the gospel. This is what he wants us to understand. And what a beautiful picture. But not only was Mark good friends with Paul. I mean, if you want to have two good friends, I want to be friends with Paul and Peter. Boom! And he would be good friends with Peter. Not only was Peter a mentor in Jerusalem, Listen to what Peter says when he's now in prison. Because he became very close to him, so much so as they served together. This is what Peter would write in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with your work, you're like, she who is in Babylon, what is that? This is code work for the church, the Christians, caught in the exile of the, the Rome oppression. That's who he's talking about there sends you greetings. The people from Rome, the Christians, believers in Rome, they send their greetings, as does Mark, my son. So what started out as this mentor relationship in, in uh, Jerusalem, he's now become like a father-son figure to John Mark. This is the author. He was close with Luke, because he's always mentioned with Luke. He was close with Paul. He was close with Peter. And so he has this new perspective of who Jesus is as he's interacted with all of these. And he's really going to be writing uh, from the perspective of Peter. Peter is good because there's no gospel of Peter. If there was a gospel of Peter, it would look and sound very similar to the gospel of Mark. Because he's there in Rome, he's going to be re recording these things. So roughly around the time that he writes 1 Peter on suffering, he's also recording and writing down this gospel of Mark. And so Mark simply sought to be a faithful helper a blue-collar worker. He was committed to serving Christ whenever, wherever, and he became useful. I mean, think about this. He was good friends with Paul. He got to be close friends with Luke, and he was a son-like figure to Peter. But more than that, he was used of the Lord. Regardless of all of his sh shortcomings, God saw fit to use him to pen the words of the gospel. You see, the gospel transformed Mark in such a way that he would be able to write about the gospel of Mark according to Jesus and his transforming power. His purpose and direction changed based on his uh, perspective of who, who Jesus was. And so today, I want us to contemplate this. 
You think of Peter, he denied, walked away from Christ. We think of Paul, he, he, he was angry at God until he come to know Christ. And you think of Mark, who was maybe a nobody, who became somebody because of the one person he knew, Jesus. For years, he was on the wrong pathway. He thought it was going to be fun and easy, and then he discovered it was really hard, and then he actually came to understand who the true Messiah was, the suffering servant, and he would be willing to get on the right pathway as he understood the perspective of who Jesus was and what he offered. And as I think through this, John Mark, everywhere throughout Scripture, he's never front and center. He's never on the stage. He's never on the platform. Um, he never did any miracles. He never healed the sick, raised the dead. There was never ever any revivals or any astounding facts that he could put on his resume. Just an average, everyday, ordinary person. Maybe some of you are extraordinary people. But you know, here's what I've come to learn about Christ. He loves to use the everyday, average, ordinary person. Because it's very easy for us to compare ourselves to so-and-so or to so-and-so, or for me to compare myself to you and be like, I can't do that, I'm not like him or her or whatever. We need to quit comparing ourselves to other people and just seek to identify and find our identity in Christ and follow in that pathway. Because life becomes a whole lot easier. Why is our world so confused today? Our world's so confused today because they're, they're trying to be someone they weren't created to be. Rather than just completely embracing who Christ is and seeking to find their identity and purpose in Christ. It makes things so much easier when we, we take on that perspective. Okay, due to time, we got to keep moving. Number two is this, and it's much shorter than number one. The overall audience. Who is the audience? The original audience was Gentiles in Rome. So it's not written to uh, the Jewish believer that has all this understanding and background. It's written to non-Jews, non-religious individuals, because... He writes to Roman gen, uh, Gentiles, he's going to explain Jewish customs. He's going to translate Aramaic words and, and phrases into Greek. He's going to use Latin terms and rarely quotes the Old Testament. He wanted the audience to get a quick, clear, and concise picture of who Christ is and what he calls us to. Mark, as I already mentioned, was the earliest gospel was written um, completed probably sometime either before or after the martyrdom of Peter, Peter around uh, 60. But I want us to contemplate what's going on in this time period. This is a horrible, horrible, horrific time to live. This was under the rule and reign of Emperor Nero. And if you go back to your history classes, I'm going back a long time, he was not so good. It was ruthless. And he hated and despised and loved seeing the death of Christians. We won't even get into all of the grotesque things that he would do to the persecution of the church to, to bring down Christians in and around Rome. He wanted to light them up, and he would. He would use them as candles at night out of the out, out of skirts, amongst many other things. And so he's going to have this writing style in the Gospel of Mark that shows the suffering servant, well, wouldn't that be great for an audience who is hearing, reading, listening to the Gospel of Mark for the first time, not in a worship facility out in public, but in the catacombs underneath Rome, where they're surrounded by darkness and death and bones everywhere. Do you think they know what it is to suffer? You bet. And you know what? In the midst of this, I think he wants to highlight this suffering servant. That you're not alone, and actually suffering can be good. And you're like, I, it doesn't feel good. I get that. 
but this message can be one that can be super good and encouraging for them to hear. And if this was good for these first century Christians to hear, it's also good for us to hear. Um, I don't want to compare our suffering to their suffering, but you know what? Life isn't easy. You and I are going to have difficulties, struggles, sorrows in life. And in the midst of all the struggles and sorrows or whatever suffering we might face, we can either bristle against it and blame God and get mad at God, or we can come to understand the suffering servant and be able to embrace and find a great hope in this God. And this is the perspective, this is the audience that he's addressing. And so, although it was written to those in Rome, those Gentiles in Rome, it's still very good and very relevant for us today. Because it's the same Messiah, it's the same Savior. And so in the midst of all these things, you're saying, this doesn't sound like really good news. Well, in order to have good news, you have to have bad news. And so the reality of Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, the deliverer, well, what is the good news? Well, he could deliver from death unto life, eternal life. They desperately needed to hear this because they did not know what would come tomorrow or the next day or the next week. They did not know, but they knew at any moment if word gets out about their Christianity that they could be burned alive. What hope did they have? What what comfort could they have? Well, they could have this great comfort and regardless of death, I have eternal life in Christ. This is what they needed to come to understand and know. Whoa, what are you doing? Having understood all of this, now that we understand who the author is, kind of the audience of then, still good for the audience of today, we need to contemplate now the overarching aim. So what is the aim? What is the point? The book moves very quickly, highlighting different areas of Jesus' ministry as a whole. So rather than parking on all of that, here's what Mark's going to do. He's not going to park on all of the teaching aspects of Jesus. He does hit some of those. But he's going to just show and work through the driving actions of Jesus. So not necessarily always what he said, but what he did, what he accomplished. And so throughout Mark's gospel, we will see the authentic sonship of Christ. Uh, We'll see the divine authority of Christ, him doing what others could not do. And we'll see him as the suffering servant, the Messiah, the anointed one, able to take away the sins of the world. So there's this basic structure, though, and we're going to look at kind of like the introduction to both of these basic structures. Uh, Chapter 1 through the mid part of chapter 8 is really the identity of Jesus, the Son of God, the mighty Messiah. He's pointing them to this. He's pointing them to who Jesus is, the name of Jesus, and him being the Messiah. He's pointing to, to that. And then halfway in the book, we do like an about face, a complete shift from understanding that because there's a light bulb moment where Peter actually realizes him as the Messiah. And before that, they're always traveling in and around uh, the Sea of Galilee. They're just here, there, they're in all these areas. And once he is identified as the Messiah, he's going to actually point to himself as the suffering servant. And it's all from that point on, moving through the passion, moving towards the acts of Jerusalem. And so having said that, we already read it, but Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the Uh, as it is written in the prophets, right out of the gate, he's highlighting the word gospel. I love the word gospel. The gospel is good news, joyful proclamation. This is glad tidings of great joy. But but good news of what? We can turn on the news and and maybe hear something good. Good news of what? It's not of, of what, but a of who? The good news of Jesus Christ. That is Christ being the Greek word, 
for anointed one or the Hebrew word for Messiah. So right from the very beginning, he's like, I want to proclaim something. And it's not just any news. It's not just bad news. It's actually good news. And it's good news of what? No, it's of good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. So he's wanting them to just identify that right out of the gate. Now, Old Testament, who are the anointed ones? It's prophets, priests, and kings. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to say, yes, he is prophet, priest, and king, but he's uniquely different. Because we can look at all of their sin and all their struggles and realize they weren't perfect. And they could never be the anointed one. They only, they only offered short-term things. Jesus offers eternal things. And so this is what he comes to understand. Christ. And so here's what we understand. The perspective of the Messiah. The Jewish people were looking for a king to establish temporal kingdom. You know, those that would overthrow Rome. That's what they wanted. We're so tired of the oppression. No, no, no. Mark is pointing to the perspective of Jesus. The king who was and is currently expanding his eternal kingdom. This is what he wanted them to know. And that's why he then transitions to son of God. It's interesting. There's five times where Jesus is specifically identified as the son of God. Two times by demons. He does this great work and they identify him as the son of God. Two times by God the Father at his, at his baptism and then at his transfiguration, right? And then, so we, we see the, the Son of God, verse 1, chapter 1, and then at the very end of the book, with all those things that I just mentioned, is the bookend of who? A Gentile Roman soldier, as he's crucified, he cries out, surely indeed this was the Son of God. Mark is wanting us to see and understand this man is no ordinary man. He is fully God and fully man, fully human, and, and yet has this divine deity of God as well. He wants them to see this. He wants them to understand this. And this would resonate very well with the original audience because the emperor in Rome on that time, uh, they were considered having one of divine power. Where's Nero now, right? No divine power. Here's what we, we come to understand. Here's what he wants these people in Rome to understand. There's one that has this divine power. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants them to see that. He wants them to grasp that. So if we just read this casually without understanding the author and the audience, we might overlook some of these things. But as they're hearing this, oh yeah, they're just eating this up of who Jesus is and what he offers but then he goes on and says this. Then Mark inserts, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. So Mark, he quotes the Old Testament the least out of everyone, and yet he also quotes Isaiah more than anyone. He, he mentions Isaiah eight times in his gospel. Well, if you're familiar with the gospel of Isaiah, with the book of Isaiah, you see time and time again these sprinklings in of a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant, one who would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. What is he talking about? Talking about a Savior who would willingly suffer, lay down his life, be the servant of man, to be the Savior to man. That's what he's talking about. So it's very interesting, out of all the Old Testament, he would go here. He's wanting to, to, to start them out in this trajectory, understanding who and why Jesus came. So, Having all of that, we've just kind of gone through scene one, chapters one through the end part of eight. But then, this light bulb moment, Peter recognizes Christ as the, as the Messiah. 
Mark chapter 8, verse 27 says this. Jesus went out to, with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, so they're around, right, the Sea of Galilee. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked. He asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the Savior. And at this time, the concept of a Messiah existed. Everyone was aware of this, but they had a flawed perspective of who, who the Messiah was. And based on their flawed perspective would lead them down the flawed or wrong pathway. And so Jesus is now going to help reorient their thinking. And from this moment on, he's going to just start talking about my death my dying, my crucifixion, and Peter's like, no, those things will not surely happen. You don't know what you're talking about, Peter. I came to live and die and lay down my, my life so that you might live, because I will be resurrected, but not just my resurrection power, you receive resurrection power. This is going to be transformative for them, but it's going to take them the whole rest of the book to fully grasp and understand this, and even beyond this, they're, they're still struggling. And so the Messiah mindset was radically shifted in thinking for the uh, people of Jesus' day and the people of our day. You see, people wanted a perfect, problem-free, temporal kingdom, me, myself, and I, then and now. And yet Christ was establishing a far better eternal kingdom for those who would yield and follow Christ by faith. Christ was seeking to fulfill his mission. You've heard this before, but I want you to hear it and see it again. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Many people would hear this and scratch his head. Whoa, 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 I thought we were established in kingdom. Right here, right now, let's, let's, let's down with this oppression. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I actually came to lay down my life to serve you, but I'm doing so to be a ransom for you. He wanted to aim their direction. He wanted to aim the, the, their thinking in the suffering servant Messiah King. You see, following the pathway of Christ means we too will be exalted. And we too can enter into this eternal kingdom. What a joyful thought in the midst of joyless situations. Hallelujah. My friends, regardless of where you're at and regardless of what you face today, tomorrow, or beyond, these truths should resonate within our heart and mind in such a way that we can say, bring it on world, and regardless of what we face, we can still continue to move forward. Why? Because we're holding on to this blessed hope of this eternal kingdom and eternal life that we have, regardless of thinking we're going to find this full happiness and joy in a sin-cursed, broken world. If that's what we're thinking, we're, we're, our thinking is flawed. And he wants us to just understand and embrace who Christ is. But Christ would go on to say some, some hard things. This is what he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He wanted them to understand this, because the pathway of following Jesus is not going to be easy. But it's worth it. And so listen to what he says. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. 
For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his own life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus wants us to count the cost, for the cross actually leads to the crown. Jesus is calling us to have our life totally redefined by his life. You see, that's what it means to follow him. Mark wanted the words of Jesus to burn, to burn within the ears and hearts of them, that they would understand this, because then they're able to anticipate and absorb suffering a little more easy, not thinking life is but a bed of roses, but actually there's just thorns everywhere, that they're coming to embrace, yes, this hurts, and yes, this is hard, but it's okay. There is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say that again. There is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, can you give me an amen? amen. Oh, come, come on. I mean, that is so good. We so need this. Come on. It's so good. So, so what does this mean? What does this mean to follow him? Well, he wants us to contemplate the cross while also considering the crown. Even though Christ said hard things, there's such great hope in him. I mean, the cross, as he speaks these words in Mark chapter 8, I mean, that represents a physical death. Like, there's no sugarcoating what he's saying there. And yet, he also wants them to understand that the cross ultimately offers eternal life. So embrace this. So as we conclude, many people might say, you know, why start another church? I mean, is it necessary? It kind of sounds like, hard work, which I would testify, okay, that's true, Um, but, but here's what we see in the Bible. God calls us to accomplish hard things by his grace and for his glory. God calls everyday men and women, both young and old, to follow him and to fulfill a greater purpose. This was Mark, an everyday, ordinary nobody seeking to be used by somebody, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God actually calls us to die to our little kingdom and actually live for his eternal kingdom. Understand this. So let's remember, the way we follow Jesus depends on our perspective of who he is. So friends, Gospel Grace Church cannot be a place to hang out on Sunday mornings. It just can't. Although I love hanging out here, I love setting up and breaking down, I love all those things, it can't just be that. (laughs) Gospel Grace must be a group of people who simply acknowledge the name of Jesus the Son of God, and announce him as the Messiah to those around us. Gospel grace must be a kingdom outpost who proclaims Christ as king. Gospel grace must allow the life of Jesus to totally redefine our life. Let's pray.